0: Mona, your host on India Book, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India to its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. That he was a medieval king who, with a progressive bent of mind, dared to look ahead to find that common ground for all his people to stand together. That he was a medieval king who today is tempting us to look back into the past to see our future through his eyes. While there were always voices that have tried to project the Mughals as an Islamic and just another Islamic empire, ignoring the civilization impact that they had on India, Akbar has been a shining light in an otherwise era of darkness. Those talking in terms of easy binaries always found a good Muslim in Akbar and a bad Muslim in Aurangzeb. Why is there such hatred for then Akbar, one of the most loved kings of India? What was the journey like from being great to not so great? And how is this India different from Akbar's Hindustan? Is he relevant in today's democracy? Allahu Akbar by Mani Mugda Sharma seeks to find answers to these questions while providing a profile sketch of the emperor, his empire and the times that he lived in. He compellingly draws this to the current milieu that we find ourselves in politically. Tune into India Booked, a podcast where we lean into India through the eyes and voice of its literature to hear what Mani Mukda has to say about Akbar and understanding the great Mughal in today's time. Welcome to the show, Mani.
1: Thank you so much, Ayushi. It is such a pleasure to be on your show.
0: So for me, I think the most interesting part of this work was to see how you related the history of Akbar, not in isolation, um, and you know, sort of splattered it across different canvases of history. Why the particular narrative?
1: I was trying to experiment with something new. I have described... The journey of this book in my, in my intro but I'll still repeat it for your audience. I wrote a series of articles in the Times of India uh, 2015 onwards on uh, this vilification campaign that was going on you know in, in the media as well as because of, uh, of the ruling party and its uh, various spokespersons official as well as unofficial. Uh, so they were saying things about Albert and comparing him to you know, people like Adolf Hitler so I thought that was pretty ahistorical and a very wrong understanding of history but which at the same time reflected uh, present prejudices seeping into the understanding of the past or let's say present present prejudices or the present shaping the understanding of the past. So with that in mind, I wrote these articles and these were spotted by my publisher Bloomsbury and that's how the book was commissioned and now when the book was commissioned, so they wanted a book on Akbar. Now What different could I write on Akbar? Because there have been so many books on Akbar and the Mughals. Akbar is in fact the most well-known of all the Mughal emperors. And there has been tremendous amount of scholarship on Akbar and and the Mughal Empire. In fact, it's quite disproportionate if you see the Delhi Sultanate in in comparison. So there's much more on the Mughal Empire than uh, you have on the Delhi Sultanate or even the Deccani Sultanate. So um, the challenge was to find a new voice, a new form of storytelling. So I thought about it and uh, so since the book was commissioned without an objective or purpose in mind, so I really had to figure out a way to you know pull different threads together and then come up with a narrative. So then I proposed after some hard thought that maybe we should look Akbar not in isolation but uh, you know, situate him in his own time and context and at the same time you also look at him from a very modern perspective because that's where the politics lies. You know? So the politics of the past is happening in the present. So you in order to address that you, you really need to take a relook or reevaluate history from that point of view. So I was not bringing Akbar to the 21st century and you know judging him by modern standards. What I was doing was I was situating in his own time and context. I, I think that is very important to understand because we tend to apply modern standards to uh, you know 16th or 17th century figures. So while it is very fun, but then there's always this uh, risk of misinterpreting history in that process. So I had to do two things in that. So correct the perception at the same time, situate him in his own time and context, and also explain some of the modern problems that we have. So that was pretty much the objective that I had in mind. Of course, to what extent I succeeded is, is another debate. I think people can agree or disagree or have a different point of view with my approach. But I at least thought that.
0: So to me, I think, uh, you know, there are some books that are meant to be written by some people. And A lot of times, uh, you will find that a lot of similar themes, etc. keep getting picked up by different people and being written about. And of course, Akbar in the Mughal era is one that has more than enough scholarship around it, as you said. But to me, because you have a background in journalism, because you're an ardent history buff and you're a quizzer, all of these three things tie in together really well to um, be a very authoritative voice, even though you're not a historian, right? So how did your professional interests or your hobby of quizzing or your, uh, uh, you know, interest in history uh, sort of give you the conviction to write this piece.
1: (laughs) I guess. You have made an interesting observation that is, I think is, is is quite correct because I have been a quizzer and being a quizzer you tend to do very obscure things at times and then you can make all these new connections. So I think that came in really handy because of that years of experience uh, of quizzing and, uh, and then of course my background in journalism and uh, that really helped. But I also had a background in history. I have an, uh, I have an MA in history. So I was not uh, really somebody who had never studied history in college and the university so these three things help really so even though i'm not a, a professional academic historian like i don't teach in the university i don't have a phd uh, so far but uh, i still uh, had this background in history so it was not something that was unfamiliar to me so these these akbar had studied in college and university yes the scope was uh, much narrower back then because now I was writing a book entirely on Akbar back then he he was just one of the chapters or one of the characters that we studied and also academic history is a bit different from uh, from the kind of history that I have written. For instance, uh, the focus is more on systems and processes than individuals. So you see individuals as products of systems and processes, not as shapers and movers of uh, systems and processes themselves. Um, So uh, that was really a challenge when I was writing a book on Alpha. So I was aware that maybe this is not a very academic approach but at the same time i was trying to be absolutely sure that i don't violate any academic tenets in the process that i don't say things that i cannot support that i don't say things that the academia cannot verify because then your product becomes a work of fantasy and i did not want that to happen so i was trying my level best to, you know keep it entirely grounded in scholarship that exists already on new researches as well plus my own understanding and own observations uh, because I studied the primary sources very closely and because I was a quizzer and I knew different things. So the moment I started reading these sources, I could figure out that, hey, okay, this is similar to something I have uh, seen in some other part of the world, in some other history. So accordingly, I could make those connects. Uh, Just to give you an example, I have talked about um, various armies and various generals at different points in time, crossing flooded rivers. So you have... Alexander of Macedon, who crosses the river and catches the army of Porus by surprise. And the river was flooded at that time, it was raining. So he does that and he surprises the enemy. The same thing is done by Baram Khan when he's fighting uh, Akbar's enemies. You know, and Umayyad is still alive, he's the emperor, and Akbar is just a governor of, of, of one province of Punjab. And Baram Khan crosses. A flooded river and captures the Afghan army by surprise, and the Mughals win that stunning engagement. Akbar does that again, you know, when he is the emperor, and you see that you know Ahmad Shah Abdali does the same thing. You know, he he surprises the Marathas at Panipat in 1761 because the Marathas had gone ahead towards Kurukshetra and they thought that because the river is flooded and they cannot cross it, Abdali cannot cross it either. But Abdali actually crosses the river and, and catches them by surprise. So i could spot these different no, threads these trends in history so the moment i was writing about akbar and these episodes i could connect it with with other incidents so being a quizzer really helped now being a journalist helped because i was commenting on the present as well and as you see that the book has originated from a, a political incident so therefore a lot of politics had to be there as well so by being a journalist and because I've been writing all these stories over the years and I've been handling the different stories I bringing out, have been bringing out in edition of the Times of in India. So uh, being familiar with all that, it was perhaps a bit easier for me uh, to make those comments because uh, I could see things, a very Shahenshah-like uh, functioning in our present leaders. So that way I could make or you know, bring all these threads together. So I've been really lucky that, you know, so far all the academic reviews have been positive.
0: The rigor in the research is so palpable. I think there there's some 18 pages of just the bibliography in the book, uh, which is commendable. And to be able to pull all of this off with a day job and everything else that you're interested in is, is even more commendable. I think we've delved a lot into your journey while writing this book and you know what what went into it so uh, why akbar and why him as this figure which clearly cuts through your book if i may call it a nationalist statesman and why the particular thread of uh, tying it back to the present in the context of the person There's also bazaar history if i may call it bazaar history now propagated through whatsapp messages how do you reconcile the Bazaar history with the academic journey you took? How do you put the man in this picture? And and what does Akbar the figure mean to you and mean to what you perceive India to be? So,
1: you see, uh, as you said, Bazaar history also shapes our understanding of historical character. You know? So, most of the time, you know, your your minds are pretty much made up before you enter the educational system or let's say you go to college, you read about the Mughals, but by then you you already have heard about the from your parents or from other elders' family you know, who may have a, a distinct view about about the past. Okay, so And in India, I think what is happening right now, it's very easy to blame on the WhatsApp forwards, but we need to understand that certain prejudices have always remained. Uh, for instance, the complaint that is made, and that's a very valid complaint as well, when people say that our history is very Mughal-centric, very North India-centric. Uh, this is absolutely true. Because uh, you don't have enough emphasis laid on histories of other parts of the country. Like for instance, we know about the Cholas because they were part of our curriculum. But we don't know about the Cholas in greater detail like we do about the Mughals. Similarly, we know about um, the Sultans of Delhi. Some of them, of course, not all of them. But some Sultans of Delhi are very familiar to us. Maybe because of uh, popular depiction of them. Um, But we don't know much about the Sultans of Gujarat. Or the Sultans of the Deccan. But unfortunately, when we make that complaint, we really confine it to the bugars We don't see that, you know, it has always been these North Indian empires that I talked about the most. So, you talk about Harshvardhan. So, let's say the so-called Hindu period, you know, before the coming of Islam. Who are the dynasties or the empires that we talk about the most? The Mauryans, again, a North India-centric empire. You rule from Magadh, We look at uh, Harshvardhan, again a North India-centric empire who ruled from Kanoch and so on. So the Guptas, again a North India-centric empire. So this focus has always been on North India. So you know, when we pick up gossip, and that's why you know, in our families we have heard, at least I have heard, from other elders. You know? The depiction of the Mughals was never really negative they would say certain things which don't make sense to you at that time but now of course they do because you see that they had a very different sort of prejudiced understanding of history so that's your bazaar talk you know, that that's how it shapes your approach the problem with with these characters is that different people perceive them differently now my book has been read by different people and different people have understood agba differently even though you know, it's the same book that i have written and. And the message that has gone out has been very different to different sorts of people. So for for the troll, it's like a glorious depiction of Akbar. It's a so-called whitewashing of his, uh, quote unquote, genocidal crimes. So I I keep getting accused of, you know, whitewashing history and all that. But at the same time, uh, you have, as you mentioned, you have got a very different understanding of So that understanding is very different. It differs from person to person. So um, for me, Adber was this mythical figure till the time I started researching for my book. He has, even though there have been Much criticism by Akbar and some of his actions, for instance, the conquest of Chitor, which was quite bloody. But by and large, even the Hindu nationalists don't take on Akbar head on because they know that after some point, the propaganda will not work because the... Depiction of Akbar is by and large very positive, uh, even in, in bazaar circles. It's easier to vilify Aurangzeb, it's much more difficult to do that with Akbar. Uh, Akbar was a very mythical sort of a figure for me, uh, even though I had studied him in college, I had this very close association. I have mentioned that in, in the intro of my book that Akbar was somebody who had never lost a battle. Someone like him was quite an inspiration for someone like me, you know, who was not yet 20, and this Kargil war had happened and you know, there was a lot of patriotism and nationalist fervor uh, back then. So uh, I was still in school at that time. So I, my introduction to Akbar had just begun at that time and uh, this whole war happened and uh, and then you read about somebody who never lost a war. So you know, that uh, for somebody like me who was you know, always interested in the military, it was quite something. So Akbar became a hero almost instantly. And by and large, you know, as I studied him in the university later, uh, different facets of him, but then um, the, the image was quite positive, but of course there were more nuances now. So I knew about his religious policy, about his Rajput policy and so on. So the syllabus uh, was pretty much structured that way, so it gives you a very structured view of Akbar and the Mughals. Anything beyond that requires a deeper engagement. Which happened in my case when I started writing this book. And I realized that some of the things, some of the perceptions that I had about Akbar was actually quite different. So, Akbar starts off as a very unremarkable. ruler so he was he's just like others uh, in his family or before him um so he's guided by others we have the regency of Baram khan and bairam khan is uh, calling the shots then for a very brief period you had people like Shamsuddin khan mahamanga and his son adham khan uh, munam khan so these are the people who are pulling the strings after that for a while and uh, till the time of course five years later akbar emerges As an independent king and somebody you know who is free of all influences, Uh, he's no longer a puppet of anyone. But uh, in these four five years that you see, that he's he's very pretty unremarkable as a ruler. So you know, Abu'l Fazl. His his biographer, or should we say, his geographer? So he you know says things about the emperor that he was behind the veil. So it, I I like that expression. He was behind the veil because his personality had not been, it had not matured, it had not been exposed. So people saw him through Baram Khan and all these other. Now, when I was in college, the second phase, which is when Mahamanga and and others you know they are calling the shots that is described in a rather offensive manner as a petticoat government, because we have a woman who is pulling straight so i i thought that was pretty offensive you know? so you see that the understanding the modern understanding has also changed you know for over 15 years 10 15 years from when i was a student to now uh, being an author um so that understanding had changed and uh, so after that, after this brief phase, we see that Akbar starts taking decisions on his own and he does things uh, which are very cruel and uh, but at the same time, he also shows this you know, very receptive mind that he goes to Mathura on a hunt. He sees that there are a lot of pilgrims, Hindu pilgrims who are coming because Mathura and Vrindavan are still very holy cities for the Hindus because of their association with lord krishna and Akbar goes there on the hunt and he sees that there are devotees who have come from different parts of the country and they are paying a tax to the mughal empire and uh, so he asks them why are you paying money and they say that you know we have always paid this money to your government and to governments that came before you so we have to pay a tax to you so that we can uh, worship our gods and see the holy places are associated with them. So Akbar, he walks back. He does not ride back. He walks back. Okay, Comes back to Agra and announces the scrapping of that tax, the pilgrimage tax. And a year later, this was 1563. In 1564, he announces the scrapping of Zazia, so which uh, every non-Muslim had to pay to a Muslim state. So you see that before the coming of the Mughals, even the Mughal state was also perceived to be a Muslim state. But uh, the, the the dynasty that they uh, toppled or the state that they toppled, the Delhi Sultan, that was also that was understood as a as a Muslim state. Because you had all these taxes and then you had the Ulema who would uh, you know decide things in terms of the Sharia. Even the Sultans always had a very tenuous relationship with the Ulema because no Sultan could actually conform to the tenets of Islam. Uh, there would always be occasions when, you know, all those, uh, the, the Shariat will be violated or will not be followed. That's a different debate. I'm not getting into that. But uh, the fact that a Muslim king for the first time decided to scrap these taxes, and this was before he married these Hindu women. I think that that showed a very receptive mind that he was willing to take certain things, do certain things which would, you know, Help his people or help his subjects. So the, the, that he started to look at the people he was ruling as his own people. So I think we see a start in that. But at the same time, he was also doing other kinds of things, like you know he was persecuting the Mahdabis who were Muslims, but again, they they were not seen to be you know the true worshippers. And he was also pretty much cold to the Shi'as. And uh, there were instances when he you know persecutes or you know at least one instance when you know he he digs out, he orders the excavation of a grave of a prominent Shia uh Sufi uh mystic who was buried at the at the Dargah of Hazrat Nizamuddin. So he orders that body to be excavated, the remains to be excavated and thrown into the river. So this is also Akbar. you have this other side of Akbar where he is you know, showing a very tolerant approach and he is keeping people together, trying to bring everyone together. So I have explained this as the evolution of a personality. So he was growing, he was not a static personality and that makes him very human. So the mythical Akbar, he appeared in front of me in his different shapes and it was remarkable I thought that you know somebody who was doing this he was also doing that at the same time that's how rulers are and that's how 16th century uh, rulers were like because you know for for the British you talk about uh, Queen Elizabeth the first you know they are very proud of the fact that it was a woman you know who who held the Tudor dynasty and and under whose reign the Sir Francis great led the navy the Royal Navy defeated uh the spanish armada so in terms of conquests alone elizabeth the first comes out as as a great queen so the, the british are really proud of that and you see that you know apart from doing this she was also persecuting the catholics so that's how historical characters are you know so you have to accept them with their shades of gray and uh, certain modern standards did not apply there so today uh, if you say things about uh, that are insensitive to uh, say feminists or the lgbtq plus people then you would be immediately branded a bigot but back then those sensibilities did not exist so we have to keep in mind that as well so adbar appeared in these different shades and i found all of that quite fascinating because now he was a very human king, a man with his failings with his frailties with his strengths as well so he would, you know, unnecessarily put his own life in peril while doing certain things. This constant need to be accepted and to be seen as a, someone, you know, who was not a mleccha. nature means a savage or a foreigner, who is outside the Hindu uh, varna system. So until the time of Akbar, Muslims, Muslim kings were referred to as Mlechas. From Akbar onwards, we see that that has changed. So uh, to be able to come to a point where he was now seen as, as king by even Hindus, I thought was quite remarkable and I have given this example earlier as well. Uh, there was somebody called Das, who was a merchant and later on he produces uh, some scholarship in the time of Jahangir. Das was a merchant in Alba's empire who had never seen the emperor but he was very happy that you know, Akbar was, was his emperor. So he was a Hindu, a Shibha. So when Akbar dies, this man, he hears the news and he was coming down the stairs and he has a fall. He injures himself badly. And then he says that, you know, I always had my faith in Lord Shiva. But if Lord Shiva cannot, cannot protect, could not protect my emperor, what God is he? So you know, that is the kind of sentiment that Hindus in Akbar's empire. Uh, had for him. So I thought that was quite remarkable for me. But at the same time, you had so much opposition. So now uh, the whole uh, understanding of Akbar gets reduced to either his abolition of Zazia or his conflict with Mewar, with Maharana Pratap especially, or his marriages to these Hindu women. So, you know, but all of that together makes Akbar. So I was trying to do that. And uh, like you said, you know, in, in, and my book starts with 1941. Right? So you have somebody called Adi Munshi from Bombay writing a letter to the editor of the Times of India. And uh, he says that Akbar was the greatest Indian nationalist of all time. Now that was his modern understanding of Akbar. So Akbar was not a nationalist. The concept of a nation did not exist. Nationalism was quite alien, not just in India, but even in Europe. So uh, he was not a nationalist, nor was he a secular, nor was he a liberal. So these are all modern tags that we have applied. And uh, sadly, uh, some commentators have also called him an anti-national now, which I think is even funnier. But, um, but I think uh, Akbar appeared to me in different shades and I thought that was lovely. So that was pretty much what I have achieved personally with the book that I, I have come out of it uh more well informed about our work and he's no longer that mythical figure in front of me
0: so i was you know a bit of a trance when i was hearing you speak about this section till i like woke up and and, you know i was like uh wow (laughs) that was amazing and you know a lot of these things are um, things i wanted to ask you about which is obviously the pilgrimage tax piece and this, um, the whole uh, tension uh, with the Rajputs, for instance, and, and his policy there, and and we began this podcast with me saying that you know he was like a nationalist statesman you're right the concept of a nation does not exist right or the lens with which I ascribe that or anyone else does and even laughable things like i say an anti-national is us looking at it from you know our 21st century lens right and and that doesn't hold and it's so fascinating but I think Even with removing those adjectives out of the picture, that whole feeling of having read about a statesman or having read about someone who married both physical and moral courage in leadership um, is is this? sense you know my next question to you money is um and and after this very very intense discussion is a little lighthearted. what do you think personally huh and and you, you mentioned about the kind of personal impact uh, that writing this book and the demystification of akbar has been for you but what do you think about the depiction of akbar in popular culture whether it's prithiraj kapoor or a roshan Russian? <laughs>
1: I, th- I think I think I am actually quite fascinated by both depictions because uh, you know Mughal-e-Azam is is a movie that I that I watched on TV as a child and uh, when I was in the university at that time it was re-released in a colored form so the colorization of the movie had happened it was re-released in the theaters so I was fortunate enough to you know go to a theater and watch it on the large screen you know, and. The colors were like stunning. You know? I was actually—you don't realize the richness of of the sets or of the costumes until you see that on the big screen in color. Okay, so the same movie appeared in a very different way in front of me. So I was like completely mesmerized. So and and um, that that sort of a feeling also happened again, though to a much lesser extent, extent uh, with with Jodha Akbar. And Jodha Akbar. Uh, uh, Ritik Roshan for me was a bit difficult to accept as Akbar because I already had this rich image of Prithviraj Kapoor. So you know when you mention Akbar even today it's the face of Prithviraj Kapoor that comes to my face. Um, but then Ritik Roshan was very different from that. That was my uh, view till 2015 2016. Now I see it very differently. Now I think I like Ritik Roshan as Akbar because the kind of vilification that has happened ever since I don't think it is possible anymore for any film director in India to make a movie which glorifies a Muslim king or at least projects him in positive light. It is no longer possible and that's the sad realization that I have had uh, over the last six years. Now, uh, let's take out the history part of these uh, movies. These were stunningly rich movies but the moment you bring history into it then you realize that okay, these are Way off the, you no. Know, Mughal especially was way off the mark. You know the way it showed Akbar as this, you know, family patriarch, you know, who has very strong class consciousness that he is not going to allow his son to marry a dancing woman, when the reality is completely opposite. So many Mughal emperors married dance dancing women. So you had. Jahadar Shah, who was in love with somebody called Imtiaz Mahal, a dancing woman who was you know, given the glory, glorious name of Imtiaz Mahal. You had Badshah Muhammad Shah, who is also called Muhammad Shah Rangila. He was in love with another dancing woman, uh, and who became known as Utsiya Belum, after marriage. And she built this huge garden, which rivaled the older garden of Jahanara Belum the 30,000 Hazari Bagh, she built Kutsia Bagh as a rival and uh, only one structure remains. But if you see the, uh, the a stencil sketch made by an English traveler, which exists in the British Library today, you would find that it was a remarkable place. At least the palace was so, so magnificent uh, in the sketch. But if you go there, you don't, you won't realize it, the, the glory of that anymore because, because it was reduced to a, an English landscape garden. From being a Mughal fruit garden, but uh, so just to give you this example that you know there were many many Mughal emperors who who had dalliances with dancing women or who ended up marrying dancing women or or, or the British would offensively refer to them as the Notch girls. So uh, the Mughals did not have that the moment you see that in Mughalism, you realize that, okay, this is a very British influenced understanding of the past. Because see, many of the things that we have, many of the the cultural abhorrences that we have today are a direct legacy of the British Raj. The British brought their Victorian sensibilities and suddenly, courtesans, dancing women were seen as uh, bad elements of the society so their depiction changed in cultural uh, the, the concept of the Tawaev from being a positive uh, woman in in mughal times they suddenly became uh, very negative it, they were portrayed as prostitutes uh, so and then of course after that that sensibility was carried forward even during the freedom movement, a great leaders of the freedom struggle, even though they were very enlightened in many ways, but they also carried forward the same colonial British prejudices. So they were also products of Victorian and Edwardian societies, but they had these prejudices at the same time. So uh, you see that in Mughalism, you know, that's, that's, that's very uh, colonial phenomenon you know, or post-colonial India, colonial and post-colonial India that you know you look at people from uh, a class angle. So Akbar talking derisively about Anarkali, a woman who is, I don't know, uh, she's referred to as Londi, you know, who's a, like a dancing woman. Uh, it's a very offensive term actually, but um, so you see that Akbar doing in this, indulging in this class prejudice, which the real Akbar may not have done. Because that consciousness was not there at that time. Um, so we also have to understand that uh, when you when you talk about bloodshed in the Mughal family, there was no rule of primogeniture. So not just princes, but even slaves who were Muslims were entitled to kingship. Okay, so you just had to be the able man, and you could be a king or a sultan. This this is not just about the Mughals, but also all other sultans. That we have seen. You know, there were several slave sultans that we must have heard. The slave dynasties was quite well known, the mamluks Qutbuddin Aibak, Gassavid Balban, you know all these people. And uh, there were slaves. And you see many African sultans, four of them in quick succession. These were Hapshi sultans. Hapshi again is today a, a pejorative word which is used for black Africans. But uh, at that time uh, it It was a term to refer to Abyssinians, Ethiopia, you know, Al-Habsh. That's how that region was called. So that's why Habshi. And uh, you had uh, many of these people who occupied very important positions. So you had, uh, uh, they were being kingmakers in in the history of India. Four of them were sultans in Bengal, the Habshi Sultanate. You don't realize all that uh, if you see the depiction of akbar or or that theater. so if you see that movie Razia sukha my god that is completely removed from history not just the costumes that they wear but also the content uh, is very different the, the same goes with the Mughal. so akbar comes off as this family patriarch you know, who has these class prejudices who hates Anarkali just because she is a woman from a humble background and he will not let his son marry. So the real rebellion of Jahangir, which happens in Anwar's lifetime, that is depicted as one being of love. So he fights for his woman. That's why he rebels against his father's authority. Now, if you take out all of that aside, it's a very rich movie. It's a delightful movie. I still watch it every time it is aired. And both my wife and I, you know, we love the way Madhupala delivers her dialogues. You know. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the kind of dialogue you know, which gives me goosebumps <laughs> So, you don't hear that richness in Jodha Akbar, because uh, the dialogue writing is different now. The, uh, the name of Urdu is very different now. But again, in terms of historical accuracy, Jodha Akbar was more accurate than Mughalism. The Mughal showed both Jodha Bhai and, and Anarkali. Jodha Akbar showed only Jodha Bhai. so there was nobody called Jodha Bhai. Akbar had one Rajput wife, uh, like he had more Rajput wives, but the first Rajput wife was somebody who may have been called Harkha Bai or kanwar who was a princess of Amer, a Kachwaha woman. But in both these movies, she is shown as the only wife of Akbar. In reality, this Rajput Wife was the fourth wife of Akbar. He had married three others before them, and he would marry more after them as well. So, uh, if you look for history in these two movies, then you would be disappointed. But yes, by and large, the chronology is pretty much okay in Jodha Akbar, and some of the characters are fascinating as well. But then, Akbar's equation with his his mother is shown in rather poor light is shown as to be more closer to Mahamanga, when the real Akbar actually abused Adam Khan, called him bachcha lada When he kills Chamshuddinath Khan, Abul Fazal says that, you know, Akbar in a fit of rage, he referred to him as bachcha lada bachcha uh, in Farsi means uh, son of a bitch, okay? So that is, uh, by doing that, he's also abusing Mahamanga, and here he is, you know, very chaste, Urdu speaking, you know, which is, you know, and Jodha Jodha will, or the Rajput characters will speak in Hindi, and all the others will speak in Urdu, the Muslims will speak Urdu, the Hindus will speak Hindi. So, this is the stereotype that we are living with, right? And you would find that they have been even more disgusting. I'm using the word disgusting because they were actually quite disgusting. I have given examples. Uh, There's this. Serial which was uh, supposed to be a biopic of of Maharana Pratap, um, Maharat Kavir, Putra Maharana Pratap. There, you know, history was completely twisted where Akbar and Pratap were childhood adversaries. Okay, so they meet in childhood where Akbar is constantly trying to seduce, while being a teenager, a little girl (laughs) who is involved in the love triangle already with the young lala Pratap, okay, somebody <laughs> called uh, Lal Kanwar. So, uh, and then, you know, the way Akbar, the, the, sorry, the young Pratap comes and defeats Akbar's purpose. You know, He stops a Hindu girl from being seduced by a Muslim teenager who is also the emperor. Now, uh, that is pretty much in tune with the politics of our time. Okay, so Jodha Akbar was still a very positive depiction, but now it's no longer, it's it's no longer possible. And you would find that increasingly, you find increasingly there'll be similar depictions uh, of Muslim characters, not just Akbar, but of Muslim characters of being these, you know, evil-minded, bad, sinister people who are forever plotting, not just the men, but even the women. So (laughs) I think that's a sad reality.
0: This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I am going to head into our last section, Mani, where I'm going to ask you snappy questions and you just tell me what is off the top of your head. Um, so I'm going to start um, ebooks or paperback? Paperbacks. Quizzing or journalism?
1: Both, I would say.
0: Reading or writing? Reading. The past or the present?
1: The present to live for sure, but the past to study.
0: The academic history of Akbar or the bazaar history of Akbar?
1: Academic, any day.
0: One change in uh, the history curriculum you would like to see in this country?
1: Uh, get more authentic historians to write them and not uh, fiction authors, or nowadays that is the trend to get, you know, uh, to rewrite history. Of course, rewriting is always fun, but of course, that has to be done by competent professional historians, not lay people who, who have a different understanding of history.
0: What's your favorite fictional book?
1: Um, I think uh, there have been several actually. Muthering uh, Heights is like the all time favorite.
0: What's your favorite non fiction book?
1: My most favorite non fiction book right now is India in the Personate Age by Richard Eaton.
0: Who's your favorite historical figure excluding Akbar?
1: Tipu Sultan and Nawab Hederali, Ali, both father and son.
0: And lastly, what's one reading recommendation that you would like to leave the listeners with that sh- they should really read to get a better sense of the nation?
1: Um, well, I would say this is a tough question. I would say uh, Nehru's Discovery of India is a very good book to read. If you are patriotic and you are thinking about building a decent nation, rebuilding the nation. I think I would recommend that for a lay reader. Uh, For specialists, of course, the recommendation would be a bit different, but I think for your audience, I would recommend this. Please read Nehru's Discovery of India.
0: Mani Mukda is on Twitter as the quizzical guy. Do not forget to follow him. You can also order his book from any independent bookstore or from Amazon. Do not forget to tune into us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana, and HT Cards.